We're going to be looking at Psalm 37, just the first nine verses, one to nine, this morning. Uh, I must confess to you that I prepared out of the ESV, not the NIV, but I'm going to try to catch any differences that that might lend and explain it as we go. You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that when we come to it, when we come to God through his word, we don't feel belittled. We feel ennobled. We feel dignified. We feel lifted up. We might get a more proper perspective on our smallness and his greatness, but he doesn't make us feel small and insignificant. He tells us that we matter to him. And only one of the ways that the Bible ennobles us is that only the Bible recognizes true human complexity. The Bible admits that there are no cheap and easy answers to our anxieties. This psalm starts off, uh, is the tone is set by anxiety. Do not fret. Don't wring your hands over the evildoers. And we find here that we don't just need, you know, 12 steps to a more peaceful you. I'm not going to preach that sermon. What we need is a savior for our anxieties. The answer isn't in ourselves, and it's not in any sort of energy that we can exert to do more and better. The answer is Christ. In the last uh, 40 or 50 years, there's a practice called cognitive behavioral therapy that has grown to prominence. It has helped some, but as studies have continued to follow it, it's found that it's actually not as, as helpful uh, statistically as they once thought it was. But cognitive behavioral therapy acknowledges something that the Bible really agrees with, that you know, the whole person is at least made up of you know, thoughts and behaviors and emotions. And so when someone goes for a, a therapy session with this model of therapy, they start with the thought. They're feeling the emotion of anxiety, right? They're feeling very anxious. They go to the, the, the psychiatrist. And this is how they start. Step one, they analyze their thoughts. They say, well, what's making you feel anxious? And then step two is they say, well, is that thought anchored in reality? Is it true? And when they discover that the thought is somehow you know, separated from the reality of the situation, then they assign exercises to kind of realign their thoughts and behaviors to reality and then hope to there change the emotion, change the heart, and ease that anxiety. There are two problems. The first of them are that changing our thoughts and our behaviors don't have such a direct impact on our emotions as we'd like them to. Uh, you, know, you, you know the story of Chicken Little and the sky is falling. Chicken Little is very anxious that the sky is crashing down around him. Well, if someone were to, to prove to him that the sky was not falling down around him and then help him to act in a way that uh, you know, wasn't panicking, he might still have that fear, even though it's not rational. We're just not always purely rational. So that's the first problem. Our thoughts and behaviors don't shape our emotions like we'd like them to. The second problem is what do you do if your anxiety-inducing thoughts are realistic? What if things are really that bad? Not only does the Bible acknowledge our complexity, our, the complexity of our internal makeup, but the Bible is very honest. And God tells us through the Bible, it really is that bad. This is really as bad as it seems. 
What I mean by that is it just doesn't mince words, does it? It doesn't say, um, you know, don't fret yourself because of well-intentioned people who might be steering a little off course. It says evildoers, those who do wrong. Other translations say the, the wicked. These are strong words for strongly difficult times. The Bible is very honest about that. And I find that refreshing. That it doesn't, again, it doesn't belittle us and say, well, you just need to get the right perspective. It says, no, it's bad. It is bad. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Psalm 37 and we're going to ask of the text, what do I do with my anxiety? I experience anxiety on a fairly regular basis. For a long time, I didn't think I did. And uh, there was a a season of my life where all of a sudden the Lord... (laughs) opened up my eyes and said, surprise, you struggle with anxiety. I didn't even know it. Uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, if I, if I went up to any of you and said, how are you today? You'd probably say, fine. But if I said, what are you anxious about today? And you knew and trusted me, you know, if we were friends, you might say, you know, it, this is really troubling me. Or at least you'll say, well, yesterday that troubled me. Or, you know, tomorrow I'm likely to have another trouble as well. We all struggle with anxiety, so this is a, um, a passage relevant for all of us. So we're going to hit it in three rough steps. What is the problem? What do we need to know? And what do we need to do? So first, what is the problem? We see in verse 1 that David is anxious because of evil men, those who do wrong. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. But why? Why are evil men anxiety-inducing for him? Well, we pick up the clue in uh, the second half of verse 7. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. So we find that the problem isn't just that evil people exist, that people with poor intentions exist. It's that they're running the show. They're in charge. Right? The, The wicked determine to make it their world, shaped by their priorities, not God's. And by the way, that's what this means when we talk about the categories of of wicked and righteous. It's important to understand this is God's word. And God says, I am the standard for morality. God says, I am the creator. And when it talks about the wicked, it's the people who won't give him that. We also have to acknowledge that so were all of we. And left to our own devices, we would be in the category of the wicked, not of the righteous. So this doesn't leave any room for us to pat ourselves on the back. But we need to face the factory, face the fact, not the factory, that'd be weird. We need to face the fact that, that your country and my country in election season are not in the hands of the righteous. Righteousness, morality is not winning today. It doesn't seem that way at least. Things aren't going our way in society. Things aren't going our way in politics. Things aren't getting easier to be the the church in a community. Things aren't getting easier to be Christians. So that's the first problem, and I think we can all relate to that. The second problem is us. We are the second problem. It's something inside. So the wicked are running the show, but then there's something wrong with us as well, and and the key is in um, verse 1, and, and verse 8. Now, this is one of those places where I have to caveat that this is the NIV. The NIV is a really good translation. Every translation brings out different nuance. 
and approaches the text a little bit differently, though staying true to the meaning. But I have to tell you, Hebrew, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew geek. I love Hebrew. It's a fascinating language. Hebrew has a really cool category of verb that means an action that you do to yourself. It's a self-inflicting verb. We call it reflexive. Verse 1, fret not, do not fret because of evil men, is a reflexive verb, which means don't fret yourself. So we find that the reason for our anxiety are the evil people, but the, the, the source of our anxiety is us. We're, we're actually stirring up our own anxieties. Uh, I don't know if you, I, I suspect you know uh, what that feels like. <laughs> you know, you, you, you think about something that makes you anxious and you start kind of chewing, it, chewing on it and mulling it over and over and over. And you don't get less anxious the more you think about it. You get more anxious the more you think about it. You know? And, and that's just a reality that it, it says about ourselves here. In fact, in verse, uh, in verse 4, you can see the same verb. Delight yourself in the Lord. Same, it's the same kind of verb there. So, we fret ourselves. Isn't that an insight? So, we find the problem, the things causing our anxieties, are both out there and in here. So, what are we going to do about this mess? What is the antidote for these anxieties? Well, the Bible does address our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors. So let's start with the thoughts. What do we need to know? What new information do we need to receive? So on the 17th of September, 1944, Field Marshal Montgomery commenced Operation Market Garden. I am no military history expert. I'm no World War II expert. But I do know, and I've seen A Bridge Too Far, which is a great movie, but I do know they parachuted in paratroopers into the Netherlands to kind of sneak in a back door in Germany behind the enemy lines. It was incredibly risky and it was incredibly unsuccessful. And if you were to kind of you know, zoom in on day three or four of this campaign into the little town of Arnhem, you'd find just a small handful of allied soldiers hunkered down in a small number of houses surrounded by the enemy on every side and things were looking really, really grim. But on the 6th of June, just a few months before, 1944, the Battle of Normandy absolutely decided the outcome of the war. So those soldiers at Arnhem in Operation Market Garden were vexed, <laughs> discouraged, anxious, fearful, and they had every right to be because their battle was being lost. The Bible says our situation is really that bad. The wicked really are running the show for now. It seems that this battle is a losing battle, but we need to know that Normandy has been fought and Jesus has won the war. He has decided the outcome of the war. Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. Even if we're still going to have trouble in the world. So that's the information we need to put into our brains and chew on for a while. Jesus has won the war, overcome the evils of this world, and evil itself. So we see in verse 2, For like the grass, they wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Because Christ won the war on the cross, we can understand the temporality of evil in this world. It's like coriander that I get from the grocery store. It looks really good, and when I go to use it the next day, it's absolutely disgusting and brown and withered. 
The first day, it looks full of life and green and vibrant and healthy. And the next day, it's done. There's no life in it left. It's useless. So God says, don't worry. And we say, well, why should we not worry? Things look bad. And he says, because the wicked won't be running the show forever. They're going to be here one day looking great, and the next day they're going to be gone. I think verse 10 says, though you look for them, you can't. But yeah, a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Jesus' victory over evil at the cross is the certainty we need to know. So even though the world seems very dark, God says that he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So yes, things are bad. The wicked are pushing their agenda, and it looks like they're gaining ground. But Jesus has dealt with the problem, and he's coming back. And when he does, it'll be the final nail in the coffin of the wicked and their plans. So that's what we need to know, the temporality of the wicked and the victory of Christ on the cross. So what do we need to do? Well, you know, it starts by saying, don't fret yourself. And then it gives five helpful alternatives for what to do instead of fretting yourself, which is great. This helps us redirect our anxious energies at something more fruitful and at someone who can save. So uh, five sub points. I'm going to go pretty quickly and land on the last one. If you're counting, that is eight total points, I think. But that's, um, I'm sorry. So the first point here, what do we need to do? Point one, look at verse three with me, please. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. The fact is, we, when, we, when we fret, when we worry, when we wring our hands, we have a bunch of tendencies, things that we are inclined to do that are really unhelpful. And the first thing we're inclined to do is trust the wrong thing. And so the Bible addresses that and says, here's where your trust should be, is in the Lord. We can't look to anyone or to anything to make this right but God himself. Only looking to Jesus. Only Jesus can deal with the wickedness of the world. And only Jesus can deal with the depth of our fear and anxiety. So, trust the Lord. And if we trust in the Lord, then we're freed up to do the obvious thing. right? If, if you're leaning on someone and, and he's your strength and he's your support and you don't have to rely on yourself anymore, then... You can just do good. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Remain. So moment by moment, moment by moment, we just look to Jesus as our only hope, as all of our righteousness. We put all of our weight on him, and we do the next right thing. It's kind of step by step. So that's the first thing we do, is we need to trust in the Lord. The second thing, verse 5, please. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. Commit your way. Another tendency that we have when we're anxious is misplaced commitment. Misplaced allegiance. What what I mean by that is we roll our lot in with someone else. We We roll our lot in with a political party, or a social justice movement, or, you know, any anything anything but God and his cause will let you down. But if we hand over the keys of our future to Jesus, he will not squander your trust. He will not let you down. He'll take the initiative. 
Trust in him and he will act. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the noonday. That's marvelous. It takes the weight off of us. Rolls up our future and our, our everything with Christ. And it's going really well for him. The third thing, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still. This is not the stillness of rest. It's the stillness of waiting. So it doesn't mean have a seat and put your feet up. And God's going to do all the things. No, no, we still work. We still have our feet on the ground. We're still fighting, right? Um, But this is the opposite of frantic, hurried, you know, self-reliant action. A couple years ago, I was uh, filing my taxes and I hired a tax professional. He was a friend of mine. And I sent him all of my tax documents and then I waited. And as the uh, deadline of April 15th came up closer and closer, and I just hadn't heard from him, I started to get really anxious. And I didn't want to you know, find out too late that I owe a bunch of money or anything like that. So I did my taxes myself. I got all the documents and I used some online service and I sat down for a few hours and I knocked it out. And I got, you know, I was expecting a tax return back, a refund, and I got a very small amount and said, okay, well, that's done. And I emailed my friend who was doing the taxes and I let him know that I'd done it already. And he said, well, if you'd waited a day, I was just about done. What did you get for a refund? And I told him, you know, it's, it was like $100. He said, oh, I got you so much more. <laughs> and I missed it because I didn't wait for him. I took matters into my own hands. I was frantic and I was anxious and it didn't go well. Be still before the Lord. Don't take it into your own hands. That's part of trusting him, trusting ourselves to him, committing our way to his way is that we can just trust him to carry it through. We can be still. Fourth thing, quickly, refrain from anger. It's verse eight. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it lends leads only to evil. The word translated into the English word refrain means to kind of loosen or slacken. It's the, it's the same, you know, if the ancient Hebrews had rubber bands and you stretched a rubber band tight, that's the Hebrew word they would tell you to, to <laughs> release that tension a little bit. And, and that's really important to understand because anger, holding this sort of... Um, seemingly righteous anger when the evil are in charge is like holding an internal tension. It's like stretching the rubber band of your heart all the way to its extremities. And when you stretch a rubber band out, it gets weaker and weaker and more and more dangerous at the same time, doesn't it? And that's what the text says. It tends only to evil. I was talking through this, uh, these sermon points with my son who was asking, my seven-year-old is very interested in preaching, which I'm very excited about. And so I'm talking with him, his name's William, about this, and I'm showing him, I had a rubber band in my pocket, and I was showing him what I was talking about, and it snapped on me, and I wasn't expecting it, and it really hurt. So it really drove this home. So funny enough, the Bible's advice for us here is loosen up a little. Just let go of that tension. If you're angry, you know, things aren't going my way, and I'm really going to do something about that, because I'm mad. That tends only to evil even though it feels right. God says it's not. In fact, God, he doesn't chide us for it. He just says, it's not good for you. It's going to hurt you. Now, fifth and lastly, 
um, I've gone out of order. And, and the reason is, in our tradition, I think we're quite good at knowing the right things to think. And I think we're pretty good at solidly doing the right things, you know? Just put one foot in step, one foot in front of the other and keep on. Here's what I think our tradition is weak at, very much including me. Verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We tend to misplace our delights when we're anxious. That might be news to you. It was news to me when I realized this. We tend to delight in the wrong things. But delighting in anything but God makes us more liable to being anxious and frantic, right? But when we begin to cultivate a delight for God, we find that so long as we have him, the things that worried us and harangued us and were on our back, they slowly begin to fade to the background. So on the one hand, uh, no one can delight in God unless God gives them a new heart. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We were dead, cold, unfeeling hearts, unmoved toward God, dead, unable to delight in him. Ezekiel says that we had hearts of stone, and Jesus is coming to give us hearts of flesh. So if you trust in Jesus, God gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh that's capable of delighting in him. So on the one hand, we can't make ourselves delight in the Lord. If you don't delight in the Lord and you don't, Jesus hasn't given you that heart, you can't make yourself delight in the Lord. You're not going to. You're not going to like it. So we can't do it ourselves. That's in his mighty hands. He has to make us righteous first. So we need a new heart. But on the other hand, this is another one of those awesome Hebrew verbs. Delight yourself. He's talking to those who've already rolled their lot up with Christ, already handed over the keys to their future to Jesus. And he says, you can stir up your delights for God. If you feel cold and tired and uninterested, you don't have to. You don't have to stay there. It is possible for you by the grace of God, to stir up your delights for him. If you can stir up your anxieties, you can stir up your delights. You might say, how do I do that? Um, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Because if you have a hobby, you know how to stir up your delights. My wife has just started baking sourdough bread. It is easily the best bread I've ever had in my life. She's really, really, really into sourdough. And so now, you know, she spends all the the time in her... uh, hovering over her starter in the kitchen. And all of her spare time when she's not in the kitchen, she's on YouTube and Instagram looking at sourdough bread videos and pictures, right? She's researching. So when she's not, you know, active, like hands in the dough, she's still thinking about it. She's problem solving. She's chewing it over, no pun intended. Um, she's stirring up her delights. And she's not getting less and less interested in it. She's getting more and more interested in it. Her whole self is engaged. She's tasting it. She's smelling it. She's experiencing the bread. Getting hungry. We, I think we all know how to stir up our delights. We do it for all sorts of things. The problem is we don't do it for God. Here's a wonderful truth that whatever we delight in, we want more of. So our greatest delights become our greatest desires. 
as we stir up our delights for God, then more of Him becomes the greatest desire of our hearts. So here's a promise from God Almighty you can put your feet down on today. Delight yourself in God, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He never holds out Himself from someone who seeks Him. Never. It's a promise. So how do we delight ourselves in God? I told you I wasn't going to tell you, but now I'm telling you. (laughs) You will only delight in God when you understand that God delights in you. That's the only way. So I'm going to take you on a flyby in the ESV, because that's what I have written here, of a handful of passages to stir up our hearts. Psalm 147.11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you ever think about God that he takes pleasure in you? Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings over you. Luke 12.32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hebrews 12.2, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the joy set before Jesus? Well, it's not glory, because he had that with the Father in eternity past. And it's not the joy that comes from just simple obedience, because he'd been doing that his whole life and his entire existence. The one thing Jesus didn't have that he got at the cross is you. You're the joy. He rejoices over you. We will never be able to stir up our delights for God until we see how much he delights in us. So we're anxious, we worry, we wring our hands, things aren't going our way. But God delights in you so much that he moved heaven and earth so that you could be with him, glorifying and enjoying him forever. Jesus at the cross is the certainty of God's delight in us. At the cross, he demonstrated his love for us and made our good and enjoyable future a concrete reality. So why fear? If you love Jesus, you have the smile of God. If you love Jesus and trust him, you're going to last forever and your best days are ahead of you. Your best days will be ahead of you, guaranteed. It's only uphill from here. But the sobering reality is, if you don't put your trust in Christ, if you haven't rolled your future up with his, submitted to him as Lord, your best days are right now. And this is as good as it's going to get. But you can have that bright future. The smile of God. Give yourself to Jesus and he won't. Waste your trust. Let's pray.